0: What comes to mind when you think about eternity? I'd be interested to actually have that conversation with all of you because I imagine you have different images that come to mind. Hopefully, it's not like naked babies strumming harps in, in the clouds. Like, what a weird conception of heaven and eternity. Maybe you think about like being able to do things that you love in this world, but without any of the constraints of, of time or resources or danger. Like, like you could snowboard down the tallest mountain, like 10 times the, the height of Mount Everest, anytime you want, but without fear of dying or, or getting hurt. Maybe you Think about the experience of like, experiencing incredible music or art made by instruments that like, couldn't even exist in this world and, and incredibly complex melodies and harmonies that like, would melt our minds if we experienced them now. Maybe it's the, the thought of being reunited with people that you love or, or meeting people from past generations who have died in Christ and getting to spend time with them, enjoying fellowship and food. Maybe it's seeing God and having all of the hopes and dreams of a life in this world shaped by the imagery of Scripture come to reality. I hope that's the case. Maybe For some of you, like Freddie Mercury, if you're really honest, the thought of spending eternity in a perfect place with perfect people is not actually that interesting. It doesn't seem very exciting. Oh, I wasn't made for heaven, he said. No, I don't, I don't want to go to heaven. Hell is much better. Think of all the interesting peep- people you're going to meet down there. Obviously, I think he probably has a few misunderstandings about what heaven and hell actually are. And so the first thing I want to do is actually clarify a few terms. Often when we talk as Christians about eternity, we talk about heaven. And there's good reason for that. The Bible talks about heaven a lot. But heaven, strictly speaking, isn't where we will spend all of eternity. You know that, right? Heaven is the place where right now... God's glory dwells fully and completely. It's the realm, it's the spiritual realm of angels and spiritual beings. It's the place where Jesus ascended to when he left his disciples in Luke 24, and it's where he will descend from when he returns to redeem the world, and judge the world. And it is the place where our souls, the souls of those who have trusted in Christ, go when we die, awaiting the future redemption of the world. But it is not where we will spend all of eternity. The place that we will spend all of eternity is the new heaven and earth that we see here in Revelation 21. If you just jump back a few verses from where we started to the beginning of Revelation 21, you see that John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What he's talking about here is just before, at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 20, After Satan has been finally and fully defeated, the throne of God appears. And in verse 11, we see that it says that from his presence, from the presence of God, the earth and the sky fled away. The canvas of creation was wiped clean. And then we see the final judgment where death itself is thrown into the lake of fire, which paves the way for the new creation to arrive in Revelation 21. Now, there are two possibilities, I think. There are two possible traps that we can fall into when we start thinking about eternity eternity in general and Revelation in particular. Trap one is to um, it, it's, it's to imagine that the new creation will be nothing like the world that we live in now. I think this happens when, when we think that the imagery that the Bible gives us is like so abstract and so fantastical that we can't actually derive anything of benefit or value to understand what the future reality will be like. This type of thinking might result in someone saying something like, you know, I don't, I don't really see the point of, like, thinking about the new heaven and the new earth. Like, it all just seems kind of weird and abstract, and I don't know, whatever it's going to be like, like, I guess I'll find out when I get there. That's trap one. Trap two is the approach that views the imagery in the Bible as a strictly literal description of the world to come, we might call this the, the naked heart baby trap. Not the naked heart baby trap, like it's trapping babies, but like naked heart baby trap. Like you can kind of see where a 16th century artist was like reading his Bible, and okay, there's like, there's angels, there are. They're like innocent, I guess. so They're kind of like babies, and they ha- and, and like there's harps and there's trumpets, and and they're in the heavens, which is kind of like the clouds. So like I'm just gonna mash all this stuff together, and you wind up with naked harp babies. <laughs> Both of these approaches, I think, actually tend to lead to a view of eternal life that is not particularly interesting or engaging but actually is kind of underwhelming or even boring. And I would suggest that both of these approaches are at least in part a failure of imagination. The intent of the biblical imagery throughout the Bible, and especially in in Revelation 21, is to give us a true sense of the reality of what's to come. We are supposed to look at this and derive something of benefit and value from it. But it is a reality that is, by definition, outside of our current experience. And so the only way we can understand it is by images that connect to things that we do understand. It's imagery that draws us in through the faculty of our imagination to consider a universe of possibilities that are outside of our current experience. Here's what I'm very confident of when I think about eternity. I'm confident that when we, ex- when we get to the reality, to the experience of seeing face to face, all of the images throughout all of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, will be more real and more true than we ever could have imagined. And at the very same time, they will be more surprising and more unexpected than we ever could have imagined. So I think this will be our regular and ongoing experience in eternity. Wow! I totally understand. I see how those things fit together now. I understand what Jesus meant when he said this. I understand what, how, that, how that picture from, from Isaiah fits with that picture from Revelation. I see it. It's so clear to me now. I don't know how I couldn't have seen it before, but I never could have seen it before. I never could have imagined that this is what it would be like. That will be our ongoing experience for all of eternity. The structure of my message this morning is very simple. <clears throat> I would like to give you a definition of eternal life that I've taken from this text. It has three parts, and we're just going to walk through each part one by one. So the definition, if, you have your, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I think we'll maybe have it. Eternal life is an endlessly satisfying experience of increasingly enjoying God through Christ That starts now and continues forever. Say it one more time. Eternal life is an endlessly satisfying experience of increasingly enjoying God through Christ that begins now and continues forever. So let's look at the first part. Eternal life is an endlessly satisfying experience. So look back with me at Revelation 21. What we see here in this passage that we read is an endlessly interesting place with endlessly interesting people doing endlessly interesting work. So let's look at first at the place. We mentioned already that the entire heavens and earth will be be remade. What will that look like? I don't know. Does it mean that like all of the matter and energy in our current universe will somehow be reformatted into a new configuration of, of physical and material realities? Maybe. I, I can geek out on some of this stuff. I won't share with you some of my more nerdy speculations. Does it mean that that there will be entirely new forms of matter and energy and governing dynamics that, that are unlike anything we've experienced now. It's certainly possible. Right now, see, we experience the world primarily through physical realities, like through material realities. The world that we interact with is primarily a material world. Heaven is primarily a spiritual world. The two of them kind of touch just on the fringes. We interact with the spiritual world through unseen realities, but, and, and the, the, the spiritual world breaks into our reality. But in the new heavens and the new earth, they come together. They're one single reality. What will that look like? What will that feel like? I don't know. But here's what I do know the new creation won't be less interesting than the one we live in now. And this one is actually pretty amazing. Like, I don't know too many people, I don't know if I've ever met anyone, Christian or not, that isn't awed in some way by the beauty and the power and the majesty and the complexity of the natural world. How much more interesting and awe-inspiring will this world be when it's freed from the effects of sin? Let's keep going. Another key feature that we see in the new creation is this magnificent city called New Jerusalem. If you look in verse 10, we see says, and he carried me away. This is John speaking. John, the, the apostle that we've just been spending a whole lot of time with, is the author of this book. I won't give you a whole lot of background on it, but just know that, that this is our old friend John. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. And it goes on to describe the, the walls and the gates. And then in verse 16, we come to the dimensions of the city. 12,000 stadia. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in a minute. I just finished telling you that it would would be a mistake to consider that the imagery of Revelation is intended to give us a strictly literal picture of the new heavens and new earth. Bear that in mind as we move through this next section. This measure, though, of 12,000 stadia is at least in part intended to be It's intended to represent the perfection and the completeness of the new Jerusalem. This number 12, you see it repeated over and over again. 12 gates representing the 12 tribes, 12 foundations representing the 12 apostles. The dimension of the wall is 144 Qubits. Uh, if you if you remember your times tables, that's twelve times twelve. It's all twelves. It's all perfect. It's all complete. Will the New Jerusalem actually have these physical dimensions? I don't know. It's it's certainly possible. But there is clearly an intention here to communicate something of the scale of this city that I think is worth examining just a little bit more closely. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to give you like a photograph or a floor plan of the new Jerusalem. What I want to do is give your imagination something concrete to connect to so that you can feel the emotional weight of the glory that this image is trying to communicate. The measure that's used here is a stadion. It's a Greek measure that literally is was the measurement of a Greek stadium. So, stadion, stadium, there's a connection. You see it. It corresponds to about 600 feet. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that says 607 feet. So, 12,000 stadia corresponds to about 1,380 miles. So just as a frame of reference, the surface area of the city, the the land area that this this city would cover, is a, a little more than half the surface area of the United States of America. But the dimensions are the same length times width times height. And so it's the surface area of the United States or half the half the surface area of the United States and 250 times taller than Mount Everest. The surface area alone is about 1.9 million square miles. If you take the top 100 cities in the world by land area, combine them all together, this city is 28 times bigger than the top 100 cities in, in our world combined. Now, so, okay, that's just the dimension. That's, like, that's just doing the math. I, that's, that's a sanctified spreadsheet, okay? So, <laughs> what, what do we do with that? Here's one place that my imagination goes with information like this Jesus says in John 14:2, In my Father's house are many rooms. <laughs> If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So now you see what we're doing. We're connecting some of the images in the Bible through the means of our faculty of our imagination. If you ask Google how many people have ever lived on planet Earth, the answer it will give you is around 117 billion. I didn't do the math. I didn't check it. We'll just use this for the sake of speculation. Now, please don't misunderstand my point here. I'm not suggesting that every person who has ever lived will spend eternity with God in the new creation. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But worst case scenario, or best case scenario, depending on how you look at it, Let's assume that the city of God has enough rooms to accommodate every person who has ever lived in the history of humanity, of planet Earth. 117 billion rooms. So then my question is, how big is each room? So first you have to find the total area of the city, right? Remember, I'm taking you back to geometry. The, The area of a cube, length times width times height. If you calculate it in cubic feet, so one foot by one foot by one foot, you come to a really big number. It's four followed by 20 zeros. So then you take that total number, the total real estate of the, of the New Jerusalem, and you divide it by 117 billion. Are you still with me? The, the answer that you come to is that each room in the New Jerusalem is 3.3 billion cubic feet. So what does that mean? How, let me help you. The largest building on the planet Earth today is Boeing's airplane factory in Everett, Washington. We may have a, yeah, we have a picture of it. It covers the area of about 75 football fields, and it's 120 feet tall. You could fit seven of them into one room in the New Jerusalem, according to the all of the assumptions, the the totally made-up fictional assumptions that I just gave you. (laughs) Now imagine, imagine each of those 117 billion rooms or mansions, as some, some translations call them, filled with the creativity and industry and diversity that defines the most vibrant neighborhoods and cities in our fallen world. Then extrapolate from that what would be possible with, when the creativity and industry is r- unleashed without limitation of time or energy or resources. Here's the last thing I want to say about the New Jerusalem one of the reasons I think we can view eternity as boring is because we imagine it as static. Meaning nothing ever changes or grows or there's never anything new. So even if it's amazing, like even if I get to this city and I'm like, whoa, that's a big city. Eventually, some point in eternity, I'm going to see all of it. And And then what do I do? We'll talk about this more in a minute, but to think that there would be less creativity, less industry, less art, less music, less food, and all of the diversity of of expressions in human culture that we see in this world, that there would be less of that in the new creation is just not consistent with the imagery that the Bible gives us in just this one hypothetical conception of the new Jerusalem, of the city of God, which is one feature of the new creation, you have more than 100 billion massive, unique, dynamic spaces, which means, just as a point of reference here, if you spent one day in each of those 117 billion rooms, it would take you 320 million years to see all of them, now consider how much cities in our fallen world change in the course of years or decades. Then imagine a city like this pulsing with the energy of eternal life and imagine how it might change 50 or 100 or 200 million years since the last time you got around to visiting this section. Maybe this kind of speculation like, seems weird to you. This is, this is I, I told you from the beginning, this is where my imagination goes with things like this. But your imagination may go in a different direction. I'm not suggesting in any way that this hypothetical <clears throat> scenario is anything like what the reality of the new creation will be. And to be honest, I think actually this kind of hyper, like literal transcription is is like the most basic level. It's like the base level of, of imaginative speculation, of pulling together all of the images that the Bible gives us about eternity. But what I do hope is that even this very basic experience of, of, of considering the reality that the Bible gives us, it allows your imaginations to wander a little bit into the biblical imagery to unseat some of the false conceptions that maybe you have about eternal life, especially if you would view it as something that's boring or dull. Let's quickly look at the people and the work. After this description of the new Jerusalem, we see that it's this comment in verse 23, chapter 21, verse 23, it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And it goes on in verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So one thing we see in this fully redeemed vision of the new creation is that cultural and ethnic diversity is actually elevated, not eliminated, We see this reference over several times to the nations. It's the Greek word ethne. If you've been around BGC for any length of time, you know that we talk about this word a lot with regard to global missions. God's heart from the very first chapters of the Bible all the way to the last is that every tribe and tongue and nation, every ethne would be included and represented in his plan of redemption. And here we see the full consummation of that vision. Where each ethne, each nation and tribe, each unique ethnic identity that's ever existed in the world has, is represented with unique dignity and glory and honor. And all of those unique nations bring their glory and their honor into the city of God. And they're able to flourish and prosper free from prejudice and conflict and exploitation and enmity of any kind. As the vision comes to a close, we see in the final statement, in the final verses of, or the final section of verse, chapter 22, verse 5, they will reign with him forever. What does it mean that we will reign with God forever? I don't know. What I do know is this, that, that when God first created Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1, he said this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the er birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps On the earth. So God's intent from the very beginning of creation is that we would have satisfying, God glorifying work to do as rulers and cultivators, stewards of His good creation. The fall turned that satisfying, God glorifying work into painful, self glorifying work. But the solution that the Bible offers is not an eternal, all-inclusive vacation. I'm confident that eternity will not be an endless experience of idle self-indulgence. It will be an endlessly satisfying experience of endlessly interesting work with endlessly interesting people in an endlessly interesting place. Let's go to the second section of this definition. We've said that eternity will be an endlessly satisfying experience of increasingly enjoying God through Christ. Maybe at this point in the message, you're thinking something like this. Wow, you spent a lot of time talking about people, about the human aspects of eternity, like creativity and culture and achievement. I thought heaven and eternity were supposed to be all about God. You're right. Good job. (laughs) If we stopped at just imagining the place, the amazing place, and the amazing people, and we didn't even, there's so much more we could say about just the amazing place and the amazing people and the amazing work that we will have to do. But if we stopped there, we would be missing the single most important feature of eternal light, both in this passage and throughout the entire Bible. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 21, Revelation 21, we didn't read this part, but we'll, we're just going to jump back. In verse 3, there is this declaration that essentially sets the, create, lays the foundation for everything else that will come. Verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then this theme gets repeated several more times throughout this passage and culminates at the end in chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light. The single most defining feature of eternal life is that we will dwell with God face to face. Since the fall, every human that has ever come into relationship with God has come by faith believing something that they didn't see fully. Since the fall, no human except one has ever seen the full, unfiltered glory of God, and no human except one ever could. But now, once and for all, the barrier between God and man has been obliterated and we see God face to face and worship will be the central feature of everything that we do. Now here's another place where I think we can be in danger of missing the point that the Bible wants to communicate to us. Some of us, when we hear the word worship, we think primarily about a church service, or singing worship songs. For some of us, that's not the most exciting part of our week. Maybe it's the the least exciting part. I hope that's not true, but let's just be real. And so we conclude from that that eternity must be something like an endless church service. But when the Bible talks about worship, it has a lot more in view. You know that. There's a reason why I said in, in this definition that eternal life will be increasingly enjoying God, not that we will increasingly worship God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a famous document that's intended to summarize the core doctrines and practices of the Christian faith, begins with this famous question. What is the chief end of of man. In other words, what is the highest goal of and purpose of humanity? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper has famously tweaked that answer to say that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Worship and, enjoy- and enjoyment are inextricably bound together. We cannot worship what we do not enjoy, not truly. And what we truly and most deeply enjoy, we will naturally praise, if not worship. And there's something here that I don't want you to miss, church. Everything good that we enjoy in this world, whether we realize it or not, everything that we enjoy brings us enjoyment Only because, and to the extent that it reflects something of the beauty and the perfection and the goodness, or we might say, the glory of God. And I mean everything. Relationships, food, nature, sex, art, sports cars, music, drugs, professional football, peace and quiet. Parties and celebrations, everything that we enjoy, even when we enjoy it wrongly, if we could peel back reality and drill down to the heart of what it is that we find pleasurable, what we would find at the root is some aspect of God's nature, His divine glory. Paul says it this way in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. For although they knew God... They didn't honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It continues in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So, one of the fundamental features of this broken and fallen world is that we experience all of this goodness that comes to us through the creation as a reflection of the glory and majesty and divine nature of God, but rather than recognizing that and, and returning back to him the glory that he deserves, in this great irony, we actually reject the source of all of this goodness and instead worship just the thing itself. tell you this story because where we are on time. So what will it look like when this broken world is redeemed and the fallen heart and our fallen hearts are made fully new? It will look like immense enjoyment of the place that God has made, the people that God has redeemed and the work that he's given us to do. And every single drop of enjoyment that we derive from that will flow back to him in continual unending worship as the source of everything. And because God is infinite in the depth and breadth of his glory, we will spend eternity going deeper and farther and higher into our enjoyment and worship of him. The simple reason that eternity cannot be boring is because God will be there. Now, there's one additional part of this phrase that I haven't addressed yet. I've said that we will increasingly enjoy God through Christ. If you go back to the very beginning of of Revelation, you don't have to turn there, when this unfolding scene in heaven begins in Revelation 25, John sees the throne of heaven where God the Father is, is holding a scroll with seven seals that represent his final plan of redemption. And no one in heaven is found able or worthy to open the scroll. No one can accomplish God's plan of redemption. And so John weeps bitterly. I'll let him tell the story from here. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And it went, and he went, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, "Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain." And by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a king, a kingdom, and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. And so the rest of Revelation describes the Lamb. It's this, it's this unfolding drama of the Lamb standing in the center of the throne room of heaven, opening the seals of the scroll, executing judgment, defending those who trust in him, defeating Satan, and finally sitting on his throne at the center of the new creation to dwell with his people forever. And Revelation 21, 26 tells us that the Lamb's book of life is the means by which we will enter the new city of God, and that the Lamb Himself is the light by which we will see and experience everything in the new creation. Go think about that this afternoon, that the glory of Christ will radiate from every fiber, every, I don't know if there will be atoms, but, but the glory of Christ will be so radiant and present in every, every crevice of the new creation that that we will see him and feel his presence there. The people from history who have gone deepest and farthest, I think, into the reality of the future glory that awaits us, people like, I think about people like C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, Augustine. These are people that, that marinated deeply in the diverse imagery of the Bible. They meditated and speculated. They they made connections between the images, between this one and that one, between this book and that book, and through the work of the Spirit, directing and illuminating their imaginations, they flesh out this multidimensional picture of the glory that awaits us, that takes them deeper and deeper and deeper into the love of Christ that fuels hope, and that empowers a life of submission and love for Christ. And when we look at the images of the New Testament that the New Testament uses to describe God's plan of redemption, Jesus is always at the center. Jesus is the gate by which we enter eternal life. Jesus is the shepherd that leads his and protects his sheep. Jesus is the pearl of greatest price. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the high, great high priest. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is the perfect lamb who was slain. It's all about Jesus. And we will spend all of eternity marveling more and more and more in the endless glory of God, God's redeeming work through the person and work of Jesus. The last thing I want to say on this point is this We will only desire eternity to the extent that we desire to see God face to face. And we will only desire to see God face to face to the extent that we enjoy Him and are satisfied in Him now. I'm not trying to negate like everything I've just said about the value of using our imaginations informed by the imagery of Scripture to meditate on eternity. But there is nothing that we could imagine that would be truly and ultimately satisfying that does not have God as the central source of eternal enjoyment. And to try to imagine such an eternity would be to miss the central point of all of the biblical imagery that we've talked about and that that exists in the Bible. So if you find yourself this morning with dull and unexcited thoughts about eternity, it may be because you don't see God as truly satisfying right now. That brings us to our last section. We've said so far, eternal life is an endlessly satisfying experience of increasingly enjoying God through Christ that starts now and continues for all eternity, forever. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a very well-known exchange with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he uses the imagery of water and thirst to make an important point about eternal life. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the physical water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we see here is, and many other places throughout the New Testament, that the life that awaits those who have trusted in Christ is not something that is only reserved for the future. Jesus has just said, actually, a few verses before this this part of John, in John 3.36, that whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How we spend eternity will be a continuation and a culmination of how we live here and now. Different by degrees, but not by essential nature. And there are only two possibilities. Either we receive the life that Jesus offers, And we continue in ongoing and increasing submission and enjoyment of God, culminating in eternal joy and satisfaction, seeing him face to face. Or we reject the life that Jesus offers. We continue in the death of separation from God, culminating in eternal destruction. The Bible only offers us those two options. But the offer of eternal life is open to all who would receive it. And so if you've never received it, the door is open for you today to come in. And for everyone who would receive it, Jesus says that it will be like a spring of water that starts now and continues flowing into, and overflowing into all eternity. That's the band to return. The Christian life is fundamentally a journey of increasingly experiencing the reality that Jesus is the only thing that can truly and ultimately satisfy us. I'll say that again. The Christian life is fundamentally a journey of increasingly experiencing the reality that Jesus is the only thing that can truly and ultimately satisfy us. This is what makes It's possible to joyfully sacrifice our time and energy and resources in love for other people. It's what makes us actually want to share the good news of what God has done in our life with other people. It's what makes it good news. It's what gives us the motivation to say no to sin because we really, truly believe at the core of who we are that Jesus is more satisfying than the pleasure that sin offers to us. And it's what gives us the perseverance to endure trials, pain, and loss in this fallen and broken world. Revelation 21 reminds us that this world is not our ultimate destination. It reminds us that the trials and afflictions we experience here really are momentary and light compared to the weight of glory that God has prepared for us. It reminds us that our future is more secure and more glorious than we could possibly imagine. And it urges us to keep pressing on, to keep fighting the good fight, and to take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. Let's pray. Father, there are two things that I can feel when I meditate on the the reality of eternity. One is I feel great excitement about the future that's to come. The other is that I can feel kind of discouraged about the reality that we live in now. And I I just want to get there. I just want to be done with this fallen and broken world. Father, I thank you that you have given us a hope that's more secure and more glorious than we could possibly imagine. I pray that you would cause your spirit, by the work of your spirit, you would cause this reality to sink down into the deepest places of our hearts. That it would really change, fundamentally change, how we live every day of our lives, that it would motivate us to live lives that demonstrate that, that, that this, the stuff of this world does, isn't, isn't worth anything compared to the glory to come, that it would help us to invest our lives and our time and our energy and our resources for things that are truly life, that will truly last, not the things, not things that will burn. I pray, Lord, that it would encourage those of us who are struggling who are experiencing deep pain and sorrow, to hold on, to cling to the hope that is to come, to look to you for the strength to endure. I know that's your desire for us as we consider these kinds of promises. I pray that your spirit would accomplish that in us for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.